The old adage says there's more than one way to skin a cat, which is kind of weird because I've never had the intent or the desire to actually skin a cat. But nonetheless, the premise behind that phase makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, the whole premise is sometimes there's more than one way to do something, and it's okay to have a variety of options. Well, such is the case for C-section technique. I mean, just look at the different kind of options and variety of ways that have been published for just abdominal entry. I mean, there's the Fannin-Steel C-section, there's a Joel Cohen C-section, there's the Stark, there's a modified Stark, there's a modified Fannin-Steel. So there's all these different ways to perform the most common major abdominal surgery in the world. But in January 2022, the American Board of OBGYN released the maintenance of certification list for fellows. Well, this list includes the case for standardizing cesarean delivery technique, and it's going to rub some people the wrong way because everybody believes that their technique is the correct way, right? Well, I can tell you, look, I've been in some sections, and that's absolutely not true. But we're going to cover this because while it is a little controversial, it does make sense, and I'm all in favor of standardizing C-section technique. But boy, would it be a tough road to build! So let's cover the case for standardizing cesarean delivery technique out of the American Board of OB/GYN's MOC case list. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Cesarean delivery is the most commonly performed major abdominal surgery in the entire world. Just in 2019, about 1.1 million C-sections were performed just in the United States. And with all the different types of C-sections that have been published, and people using their own preference for the technique, it really makes a literature search looking for outcomes difficult because of all of the heterogeneity in surgical techniques out there. So the authors of this current commentary set out with one objective, and that was to offer an evidence-based, standardized cesarean delivery surgical technique, mainly because doing so would decrease patient adverse outcomes. In other words, it can help improve patient clinical outcomes. Standardized approaches to clinical practice are consistently associated with improved outcomes. In the outpatient setting, protocols and checklists have reduced patient harm through increased standardization and communication. I mean, that's the whole purpose that we have the ERAS pathway, right? The enhanced recovery after surgery. There's ERAS pathways for colorectal surgery, for gynecological surgery, and even for C-section. And it's all about standardization to take away variance to improve patient outcomes. So these authors sought to add on and build on a previously published 2013 systematic review on C-section technique called the Coronis trial. That Coronis trial, again back in 2013, did find some interesting stuff. For example, it found that two-layer or double-layer uterine closure was actually not protective against subsequent uterine rupture. 
that Corona's trial also found that perineal closure was not protective against intra-abdominal adhesions. So the authors state, look, in the absence of a clinical benefit for doing some surgical technique, then considerations like cost and time savings should dictate the appropriate surgical technique going forward. You may want to remember that for the MOC. Now, before we go through the actual steps of what this current commentary states as best practice, starting from skin entry all the way to skin closure, we have to definitely address and identify the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is this. Look, it's true. In the past, just the past seven years, there's been more RCTs published on this topic than in the previous 50 years combined. However, Even though there's been all this literature, the trials are so different in quality, sample size, and primary outcomes that it's virtually impossible for any clinician to synthesize any best practice technique. That's why this current commentary is helpful, because it takes all of that literature and kind of guides things together for what should be considered best practice, even though what they recommend can be somewhat controversial. Now, on to the specific steps of a section. Remember, this is not an RCT. This is just a current commentary based on the available literature, what this group of authors says should be considered best practice. And if we were going to have a standardized technique for section, this could be kind of the role model to follow. Well, let's start off, of course, with the skin, subcutaneous tissue, fascia, and peritoneal entry. The authors state that a transverse skin incision should be made about 2 to 3 centimeters above the pubic symphysis. However, there should be blunt dissection from the subcutaneous tissue, and then after a small fascial sharp entry, there should be blunt fascia expansion. Also, there can be the omission of superior and inferior fascia dissection. Now, let me say that again. I know what you do because I do it too during van steel type entry. We take that fascia off the rectus muscles, both superiorly and inferiorly, usually with males, right? Well, there's actually no data for that. So once you do that, that enter that, that transverse fascia expansion, which should be done bluntly according to these authors, you don't have to take the fascia off the rectus superiorly or inferiorly. And then for peritoneal entry, the best practice is to enter bluntly rather than sharp. Now, what comes next? Well, that would typically be bladder flap development. Now, I've seen bladder flaps still being created. I don't do it. And the truth is, I agree with these authors here. There's no data to do that. Omission of the bladder flap significantly reduces operative time as well as short-term and long-term bladder symptoms. And there's actually no difference in intraoperative bladder injury rate. So it's better to not make a bladder flap. So remember that recommendation. Omit the bladder flap development because it's faster, reduces OR time, and it reduces both short-term and long-term bladder symptoms with actually no difference in intraoperative bladder injury. All right, so we're at uterine incision and expansion. There should be a sharp transverse uterine incision, about two to three centimeters, and then blunt uterine entry. That's right. Based on the evidence, there's no reason to enter the uterine cavity with a scalpel. Make a two to three centimeter incision, get down until the thickness is relatively thin, and then enter with your finger into the uterine cavity, and then have cephalocaudad expansion. In other words, up and down. I remember training when I was an intern, 
and we moved the hysterotomy. We did blunt dissection bilaterally up towards the patient's axilla, right off to the sides. Well, that was wrong. The best way to do that, and SMFM agrees, is to do blunt dissection up and down cephalocaudad because that actually gives you the best kind of expansion of the hysterotomy without injury to the uterine arteries bilaterally. So what's the recommendation? Sharp two to three centimeter transverse uterine incision, blunt uterine entry, and then cephalad caudad expansion. Boom, baby's out. What about placental removal? Well, I know some have their preference, right? Some let it come out spontaneously. Some put their hand in there, reach in and do manual extraction. But based on the data, it's actually best to have spontaneous placental removal. Spontaneous placental removal had a significant decrease in blood loss compared with manual removal. So the recommendation is spontaneous placental removal at time of C-section. All right, placenta's out. Now, when I trained, it was customary to take a dry laparotomy sponge and curatage uterine cavity to prevent any retained placental fragments. Well, there's actually no evidence for that. These authors state that we should only be performing an intrauterine wiping technique only if there's trailing placental membrane seen or if a portion of membrane or placenta is thought to remain inside. But universally, there's actually no data that says that intrauterine wiping of the cavity is necessary. Now, let's hang out here for a minute because, remember, this is kind of controversial, right? I mean, what's the harm of just putting a little gauze around your finger and curataging the uterine cavity? I don't find that there's really any risk. Now, I get the authors saying there's no data that it helps. But there's actually no data that says that it's harmful either. This is why standardizing C-section technique is going to be hard because we just don't have that evidence. Remember, once again, I got to say it, just this, this is not gold standard. This is not the absolute one way to do it. This is just a current commentary of what these group of authors thinks a standardized technique would look like. I don't know. Sorry, guys. I'm still going to do intrauterine wiping because I don't want to leave anything in there. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, we just left intrauterine cavity wiping. What about routine cervical dilation? Now, I didn't train with this, although a couple of faculty when I was a resident did do this and didn't understand it then. Right before they would close the hysterotomy, they take a ring forcep and put it down into the lower uterine segment through the cervix and then open up the ring kind of so that the uterus can drain. And I always thought that was kind of weird. Well, these authors agree that is kind of weird because, again, based on four RCTs and one systematic review, there's actually no evidence that that actually helps with anything. So, yeah, don't do that. Let's omit routine cervical dilation before uterine repair. Well, that brings us to another controversial issue, which is what to do with the uterus. I mean, we're going to talk about hysterotomy closure in a minute, which is also controversial because the data has two-layer closure, single-layer closure, locking versus non-locking. And of course, the suture types are all different. But before we address that and tackle that issue, 
Do we leave the uterus in situ or do we take it out? Super controversial, right? Because people are so in favor of what they do. Now, I have to be honest, just in my perspective, I like to leave the uterus in because the truth is, and the authors do recognize, that data does show they have less nausea and less pain if the uterus is left in. However, it's weak evidence, and the authors state that if you exteriorize the uterus, well, you can see the adnexa better, and there may be the potential for decreased blood loss. So based on that evidence, the authors state that for uterine repair, that uterine exteriorization should be done. Super controversial, right? Because it's a very soft recommendation. Even within SMFM, some say, no, I'm going to leave that uterus in because nausea and vomiting is terrible in the post-op interval. Yet others say, hey, the potential for decreased blood loss outweighs that nausea and vomiting. So there's two different camps here. I like to leave the uterus in situ, but these authors say that, hey, we can take care of post-op pain, and we can take care of post-op nausea, but the potential for decreased blood loss should win. So remember, it's not gold standard, it's just a current commentary, but these authors do suggest taking the uterus out for exteriorization for uterine repair. As if that wasn't controversial enough, then comes what's the best way to close the uterus itself. Again, some authors say two-layer closure or single-layer closure, locking versus not locking, but I did find this interesting. The authors state that, look, there is some data that if you do a two-layer closure, you're going to get higher or thicker residual myometrial thickness. However, those studies that showed a thicker myometrial layer with a two-layer closure actually didn't translate to any better clinical outcomes. So are we doing a two-layer closure to look better on ultrasound or to really impact clinical outcomes? Because that data is just not there. So these authors state that for uterine closure, a single-layer uterine closure technique should be preferred. But they steer away from the controversy of should that single layer be locking or not locking? Well, they don't get into that and they don't make that recommendation. They kind of leave that as single layer uterine closure and then you figure out whether you want to lock it or not. All right, remember what we're doing. We're walking down the C-section technique. Now we've closed the uterus, and that brings us to intra-abdominal irrigation. I told you that some of this stuff was going to be a little controversial because I think it's kind of gross to not irrigate the abdomen before you close it. I mean, remember, C-sections aren't sterile. They're clean contaminated. You enter the GU tract. So not irrigating just seems kind of weird. Plus, who wants mech or vernix floating around in somebody's abdomen? The truth is, though, that the RCTs don't show that intra-abdominal irrigation actually does anything to reduce fever. Intra-abdominal irrigation has consistently been shown to increase intraoperative and post-op nausea, increase antiemetic use without a reduction in infection rate. So these authors state to omit intra-abdominal irrigation. Again, I, I get the data. I understand that. I just think it's gross to have stuff floating around the abdomen. Blech. But once again, if we're going to follow the data, it's pretty much clear that you should omit intra-abdominal irrigation. And we're moving on. Now we're at peritoneal closure. Close it or not close it. This has gone back and forth. My goodness. Well, the short end of it is these authors say that based on the available data, there's no evidence that peritoneal closure prevents adhesions, even though that makes me uncomfortable. So they say to omit peritoneal closure. Well, what about rectus muscle reapproximation? 
I, I personally, I think that just leads to diastasis recti, and I'd want my abdominal muscles closed. But the truth is, the data isn't there. Man, I told you this is controversial. I don't like these things that they're saying. But if we're going to standardize it, this is what they, again, recommend just as their commentary. It's not the gold bench or the gold standard. It's just what they think would be best practice. And they say because the data isn't there, we should omit rectus muscle reapproximation. Now on to changing of the gloves during surgery. Now, I didn't train with this, but I know some programs probably did. And that was the issue of right before you close the abdomen, you would change gloves to try to decrease infection. Now, if you think that sounds kind of weird, well, it is. And that's why the recommendation is to avoid or omit routine glove change because, yeah, that doesn't do anything. On to the fascia. Well, everybody agrees here. This is pretty easy. There should be a continuous closure of the fascia that's not locking with delayed absorbable suture. Now that we've got the fascia closed, what about subcutaneous tissue irrigation? Yeah, that also is evidence-based. There does tend to be less hematoma and less seroma formation in patients who have subcutaneous saline irrigation. So these authors do recommend to continuing to perform subcutaneous tissue irrigation and subcutaneous tissue closure if the subcutaneous tissue is 2 centimeters in depth or greater. Well, podcast family, that brings us to the skin. The authors state that in a meta-analysis of 12 RCTs, subcuticular suture closure significantly reduced wound morbidity with no difference in pain, patient satisfaction, or cosmesis. In trials that included women with obesity, subcuticular suture was superior to staples. So the recommendation is that subcuticular absorbable monofilament suture should be used for skin closure over staples. Podcast family, I know this may make you a little uncomfortable because I don't like some of the things that these authors recommend for standardized C-section technique. I mean, I like leaving the uterus in situ for repair. I like doing intra-abdominal irrigation. But the truth is, maybe the data isn't there. Now, the authors do have a great point here, right? There's really three reasons why we really should try to standardize this technique. One is we can make sure that residents are getting the same training everywhere that they're at rather than all this kind of hodgepodge different cesarean techniques that they're being exposed to. Second is that standardized C-section techniques really can improve patient outcomes. And that's really what it's all about. And third, it would finally be able to take a look at the data and make heads or tail out of it because there'd be one way of doing the section. But that's just not the case right now. I don't know if we're ever going to agree on standardized C-section technique, but these authors do make the case for it in this current commentary. Again, we have covered the MOC article reading list from January 2022, and this is the case for standardizing C-section delivery technique. As always, we're thankful for you, and we're glad you're part of our podcast family. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.